0: Our sermon text this evening is uh, from the book of Ephesians. In um, your bulletin, we have verses 13 and 14 from the English Standard Version, and I'm actually going to read the entirety of verses 3 through 14 because we're coming to the close of this section uh, this, Remember, I've told you, starting in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1 all the way through verse 14 is really one long sentence. And I will explain a little bit more in a moment why part of it, why in your bulletin is from the English Standard Version, whereas I ordinarily read and preach to you from the New King James Version. In fact, I'm going to read to you from the New King James Version, and I will explain in a little while why I have some of the English Standard Version in your bulletin. But here again, the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together and one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things According to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Let us pray. Father, we come to your word and we thank you for it. We know that it is able to make us wise unto salvation. We ask for your help, Lord, that you would bless your word, that it would not return void, that you would accomplish in it, Lord, what you have set forth to do. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as I said, this this great long sentence provides for us a number of spiritual blessings in Christ. When the Apostle Paul started out in verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He then goes on to give or enumerate several of those blessings, including being chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before God, including being predestined to adoption, including being redeemed by Christ's blood and having the forgiveness of sins, including having the gospel revealed to us in all wisdom and prudence, including becoming an inheritance, God's own heirs, His prized possession. And so now the apostle comes to the end of this great list and telling us of more spiritual blessings in Christ. Namely, what he says in verses 13 and 14, and that is that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And so I mentioned that I had... In the bulletin I had printed out from the English Standard Version, and then I read to you from the New King James Version, and the reason for that is there are really three translational difficulties in this passage, and I'm just gonna mention them very briefly, but I wanted, I, at first I thought the, the English Standard Version handled this very well, it handled two of the difficulties very well. And then the third difficulty actually, I think, was made more clear in the New King James Version. So there is that. But, but the first is I want to point out to you that in verse 13 of the English Standard Version, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed. Really, the main verb in this verse is you were sealed. And then the other words related to it are either participles or prepositional phrases and if you look in the New King James Version in verse 13, it says, in him you also trusted. And that word there is italicized. And the reason it's, it's italicized is the translators are letting you know that that word they added for the sake of clarity. All right. However, I think it's possible, in fact, I would suggest, in fact, I insist, that they added the wrong word, that the they, they've supplied the word trusted when this prepositional phrase actually goes with the next verb, you were sealed. All right? So that's the first area. So, so read it this way. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed. The second difficulty is also in verse 13. And the ESV reads like, well, here, let me read it to you from the New King James, after you heard the word of truth in verse 13. Now, the word after is not in italics in the New King James, but it is not in the text either. It is a supposition by the translators that we are looking at a temporal relationship. So, in other words, you trusted, and then after this, or after you heard, you were sealed. However, the, the verb and the participle are both of the same tense. They're both in, they're, it's an aorist verb. You were sealed is an aorist simple past, and the participle that modifies it is also an aorist. So most likely, it's talking about contemporaneous or things taking place at the same time. And the ESV kind of handles this well by saying, "When, when you heard and when you believed, you were sealed. These things are taking place at the same time." Okay, so so much for the New King James Version. They they um, Coming now to the ESV, they did not handle so well in verse 14. Verse 14 in the ESV says, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? All right. Here I would commend to you the way that the New King James has handled it. They said that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of the inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. That's really a more solid translation of it. The, the difference would be whether we obtain the inheritance, right, or whether God is obtaining the purchased possession. And as I argued last time, we are God's purchased possession. Christ redeemed us, right? He purchased us by his blood and made us God's inheritance. And that thought continues into these verses. And so God sends the Holy Spirit to seal us and to guarantee our inheritance for when God redeems or, or picks up as it were the purchased possession, all right, so much for all of that let 's look then at the seal of the Holy Spirit. We see that the in verse thirteen um, the Lord says that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and we're going to look here at uh, several things: first of all, a union, secondly an occasion, thirdly, an action. And fourthly, a person. Let's start with the union. Paul says, in him. The him here refers back to verse 12. The him there is Christ. So in Christ, this activity takes place. And as we've talked about before, this is speaking of our relationship with Jesus. Jesus becomes our head, right? Jesus becomes our representative. And so we have a union or fellowship with him. Therefore, his benefits can be communicated to us this goes all the way back to verse 3 blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in christ do you see just as we fell in adam so also we are redeemed and have all of these benefits of redemption in christ jesus is now our new federal head So then, all of these benefits are part of our sharing in the life of Christ. Jesus becomes God's appointed representative for us. Therefore, it is like a marriage. Or even, if you will, it is like the union of our body and soul. A human being is a union or a unity of a body and a soul. Two things that go together. So it is with us and Christ. We who believe in Christ, we who have been predestined to him, and we who have been redeemed by him, are united with him, just as husband and wife are united as one, just as your body and soul are united as one. So all of these benefits that the apostle talks about throughout come to us in Christ, whom God approved and sent to achieve these things on our behalf. All right, so that's so much for the union. You have a union with Christ. He is our head. Our relationship to God comes through him. We also have an occasion apostle says when you heard now this occasion has two parts a hearing and a believing we'll look at hearing first when you heard in verse 13 and there are two parts that are heard the word of truth it is called and the gospel of your salvation now this hearing that the apostle talks about is not simply hearing with the ears although it probably involves that but the difference here is kind of like as mothers do you ever talk to your children and they're hearing you but they're not listening or perhaps wives don't raise your hand dear perhaps wives when you talk to your husband he may not be hearing you you know the difference right we can we can hear but not really hear it's kind of like on charlie brown by the way charlie brown christmas is i wonder if that will air this year again but but on but on charlie brown remember whenever the teacher would talk and it, womp, 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 right there's you know there's a noise but you're not discerning it, you're not understanding it. Okay, well, the hearing that the Apostle Paul is talking about here is hearing with understanding. He's telling you, just as he told the Ephesians, that when you heard the word of the gospel, when you heard it and understood it, in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? This is what we will call conscionable hearing, what our confession calls conscionable. It's hearing that makes sense of what is said. Remember, Jesus would ask some of the crowds or some of the Jews, why do you not understand what I am saying to you? And the reason why they didn't understand, Jesus told them, was because they were not his sheep. But you see, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. You see, there is a kind of hearing that takes place when God sends forth his word to his people who have the Holy Spirit and they hear it and understand it. They have conscionable hearing. In Mark chapter four, Jesus talked about the purpose of his parables And he said the reason why he spoke to them in parables was that hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven. Do you see that? Jesus spoke to some in parables so that they wouldn't understand. Why? Because they were not his chosen one. They were not the sheep of his pasture. Therefore, he did not provide them with the Spirit, and therefore they could not discern his words. They could not hear with understanding. But you, believer, you hear with understanding because God has chosen you, because he sends forth his word to you, and because he gives you his Spirit to enlighten your minds and make you able to hear. Now, look at what is heard here. It is called two things. Number one, the word of truth, and number two, the gospel of your salvation. These are one and the same. The word of truth and the gospel of your salvation are one and the same. It's called the word of truth because it is truth. It is a message of truth. It is a message about the truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a message that depends on its truthfulness. You know, we sometimes wonder, who is it that loves us enough to tell us the truth. If we love people, we know we will tell them the truth, even hard truths. Well, God loves us enough to tell us the truth, the brutal truth. And here is that truth. The truth is is that we are sinners. We are fallen in Adam. We are not just people who commit sins, but we are sinners. We have rebelled against our God. From the womb, we have been sinners But there's more to that truth. The rest of that truth is that God sent His Son to pay the price for sinners. That is the truth of the matter. God says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's not a flattering thing to hear. God says that your sins before Him are a stench in His nostrils. But you see, God loves us enough to tell us the truth in the Gospel. And He says, if we do not repent, we will die in our sins. And to die in our sins, beloved, means to suffer the pains of hell forever. But that is the truth. That is the gospel. That is the word of truth. The gospel only makes sense to us when we understand that we are sinners who deserve God's wrath and displeasure. And God loves us enough to tell us that truth in order that we may escape it. And always we remember, but Jesus suffered and died In the place of sinners, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, it is the word of truth, and those words are true. And you know your sins, but know that the truth of God's promises to sinners is given here in the gospel. And when you hear it, you must know that the truth of God's promise is even stronger than the truth of your sins, your own sinful heart which condemns you. The truth of God's promise is stronger. But it is also called here the gospel of your salvation. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 refers to the gospel, which Paul says is the power of God for salvation. Now, it is not the gospel itself necessarily, but rather the contents of it. It is the truth communicated in this gospel by which men become united to Jesus Christ. The gospel reveals man's true condition. And it promises in it the only remedy for that condition, and it demands the gospel. Do you know that the gospel demands the only acceptable response? Remember the Philippian jailer. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the Apostle Paul in the imperative says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You see, that is the gospel Demand, And that is the only acceptable response to the gospel. And I warn you, beloved, that every time you hear the gospel and you do not respond in belief, you are storing up for you unbelievable horrors. The only acceptable response to the gospel of salvation is to believe it, to rest upon it, to trust it with all that you have. And that brings us to the second part of the occasion of our sealing and that is believing in addition to hearing the gospel and understanding it. You must believe to hearing. We must add believing. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter four. The author of Hebrews is contrasting those in the new covenant with those in Israel who fell away. And he says for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them. Not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Do you see that if the word of the gospel, it could be the best gospel presentation in the world, but if it is not combined with faith, it will be stupidity to you. It will be meaningless to you. It will be nothing to you. You must combine the gospel with belief. You must believe in the gospel. And this is the difference between what the confession of, of faith calls the outward call. And the inward or effectual call. Many people will hear the outward call. Many people will hear preachers just like myself and preachers around the world offering to them the benefits of Christ. But not everyone who hears the outward call will hear and believe and thus have the inward call. And the difference between that, inwardly, is the Holy Spirit working in us. The difference on your part is to receive it by faith. You are obligated when the gospel is preached to receive it by faith. That is the response that God demands from you. Believe what He says in His words and thereby be saved from it. Let me share with you just briefly some notes about faith. When I say faith, I mean that you have knowledge. You are believing in Jesus Christ as He is offered to us in the gospel. That means you understand that you are a sinner. You understand that you're guilty before God. He's got you dead to rights. He knows you better than you know yourself. He's got you. But you also know that God sent a Savior. That Savior is Jesus Christ. And that Savior came to die and to be raised again to forgive sins. And that whoever trusts in him will be forgiven and will be given life. So you must know that. Little ones, hear me. You must know that. These are the facts of the gospel. So that is the knowledge. You must have that knowledge. You must have a Savior for whom you can reach out to as Savior as Jesus Christ. But you must also have assent. This is agreement. You can't just know the facts of the gospel. In a certain sense, Pontius Pilate knew that Jesus died, didn't he? There were many people with whom Jesus interacted who knew things about him. There were people who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They knew he could do things like that. But they didn't agree with it, did they? They didn't assent to it. They didn't find it beautiful. They didn't find it sweet. So you must assent to these truths. You must say, yes, yes, it is the case that Jesus Christ is the Savior who raised from the dead. Yes, you must agree with these things. But more than that, you must trust. You must trust. You must stake your hopes, your individual hopes. Children, your parents cannot do this for you. As much as I love you, little ones, your parents and I, we cannot do this for you. You must place your hopes upon Jesus Christ. You must entrust yourself onto him, acknowledging that he is the only Savior and having the only response that God accepts to his gospel, and that is believing, trusting, throwing everything that you have. This is your only hope, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is faith. You must know. You must assent. You must trust. So we've seen that there's a union with Christ and an occasion. The occasion means when it happened. And now we see the action. This is the main verse, excuse me, the main verb in this verse. And the apostle says, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, a seal is very much like what a king would have on his ring. He might have a signet ring, and he might press his seal into wax or clay. He did something to indicate authenticity or um, approval. Uh, Pontius Pilate ordered that a seal be put on Jesus' tomb so that no one would monkey with it. Right? It's something that someone in authority does to indicate that this is not to be transgressed. So we are sealed. That is marked... With the king's seal, but not with a ring, not with a stamp. you know, like uh, I remember um, my birth certificate. It has a raised seal on it, right? It shows it's authentic. Um, cattle are oftentimes branded, right? You put a hot iron on cattle, and that burn in them marks them. It shows who they belong to. Well, this is what is being discussed here. God puts a mark on it as it were authenticating us, showing that we are indeed His, genuinely and truly showing that He has authority and ownership of us. I was thinking about various ways that I could illustrate this ceiling that God does and then I realized, you know, preachers are always looking for illustrations, right? We're always observing and we're always thinking, you know, that reminds me and and, you know, we, we oftentimes are thinking, trying to think of ways to illustrate and express what the Bible is teaching. And, and in this instance, there's really a simple one that Scripture gives us, and that's our baptism. That's our baptism. Baptism is an outward sign of the inward reality that the Scriptures are talking about here, isn't it? Isn't baptism a sign and seal of the covenant of grace to the party baptized of his ingrafting into Christ? of his partaking of the benefits of Christ, of his engagement to be the Lord's. So baptism, our baptism, what we see outwardly is telling us about what the Spirit of God does inwardly for those who believe. So just as we see baptism, if we had spiritual eyes that could see spiritual things, we would see the Holy Spirit marking, put an indelible mark upon God's people so that they are marked out as belonging to God. It's almost like we are putting on a special uniform. We are wearing clothes that identify us as belonging to God. But these are spiritual clothes that we don't see. They rather, they take place in us. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to the person. The Holy Spirit of promise, the apostle Paul says. It's not simply a stamp or a raised seal or, or a mark from an iron or any of these kinds of things, but rather it is the Holy Spirit himself, the third person of the Godhead. God Almighty takes up residence in his people. The seal is a person The seal is God himself. And this makes sense because it was God himself who chose us and God himself who redeemed us and made us his possession. And now it is God himself who seals us as his possession. He is called here the Holy Spirit of promise. And this refers to him having been promised. The Holy Spirit was promised in the Old Testament. Hear this from Ezekiel 36 26 and 27 I says the Lord will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them God promised all the way back in the old covenant that he would send his spirit and cause his people to follow after him and to obey him and that is the promise of the Holy Spirit but Jesus in the New Testament promised the Spirit, didn't he? He promised his disciples. Listen to what he said before he went away. He said to them, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. See, Jesus was promising the seal of the Spirit. He was promising the Holy Spirit, who is the seal. One more, the Apostle Peter. There's, there's countless promises of the Holy Spirit, but I'm giving you a few just to show you that when the Apostle refers to the Holy Spirit of promise, he's referring to that Holy Spirit who was promised to you. Now then, Peter says this in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. Remember this, preaching to the Jewish crowds, and they Said, what sh- they were cut to the heart and they said, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call. So then this is the promised Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit whom the prophets in Christ and the apostles promised to those who believe. So let's just go through this verse 13 one more time. In Jesus Christ, that is our representative, when we, when we heard the gospel and believed it, God sealed us with his Holy Spirit. But not only does God seal us with his Holy Spirit, but he also gives us by that same spirit a guarantee. In verse 14 he says who is right so the who in verse 14 refers back to the holy spirit of promise the holy spirit of promise who is himself the guarantee of our inheritance so we have first of all an identification and this is followed by a function and then followed thirdly by a redemption the identification the holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Do you know that the Holy Spirit who guarantees your inheritance is the same Holy Spirit by whom Christ became the incarnate Son of God? It was the same Holy Spirit who was there at Christ's baptism. The same Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus Christ to do miracles. The same Holy Spirit who was there when Christ was tempted. Remember the Holy Spirit who ministered to Jesus Christ when he was tempted. The Holy Spirit, God, the third person of the Trinity, is the one who guarantees our inheritance. As I mentioned before, it makes good sense because it was God who chose us and God who redeemed us. It is God who is going to guarantee our redemption. We look now at the function of the Holy Spirit. What is he doing? It says here that he is the guarantee of our inheritance. The word here is arabon. It comes from the Phoenician. It came into the Hebrew and eventually into the Greek. And it's funny because even in Greek today, the word arabon refers to an engagement ring. When you think about how that works, before a man and woman get married, a man will give a woman a ring as a, as a pledge, as a, a promise. And and she puts on the ring, and that's their promise that they're going to be married. They haven't been married yet. The the marriage has not taken place yet. It's not complete, but he he gives her his promise. That's a similar thing to what the Apostle Paul is describing here. It it means a, a down payment. Say if you were buying a house, and before you take possession of the house, you give a down payment. Sometimes they have earnest money. Right? Earnest money on a house. You, you give them a certain percentage of the property before you, before the contract is fulfilled. Or we have deposits. When I was a kid, we had Kmart and we would put things on layaway. Right? And you give a little bit of money and then, and then later on you come back and pay the rest and pick it up. That's what's being described here. The Spirit is given to you now as a portion. Understand that. As a portion, the Spirit is given to you now as a portion for what is in store for you later. But don't forget who it is that is this guarantee. It is God, the Holy Spirit, who is this guarantee. So then God gives us this promise, this guarantee, this down payment, this pledge that he will be coming back for us. That he, you Think of it this way. Has, has God spilled the blood of his son, right? spilled the blood of His Son to forgive your sins, and then given you His Holy Spirit as a promise, as a guarantee, only to abandon you now at this point? God has already invested more in you than you have ever invested in God. God has given you a down payment, a promise, a guarantee, none other than the Holy Spirit. So the function of the Holy Spirit then is to guarantee your redemption. The redemption here is the... in verse 14 the redemption as i said in the, it's better in the new king james the redemption of the purchased possession that is to say you you are the purchased possession remember we talked about you are god's own prized possession a people holy to him a people he purchased and he is transforming and making into something worthwhile the Holy Spirit is there to guarantee that because you understand that that if, if it were not for the Spirit's guaranteeing of us, we would lose what Christ purchased for us. We would squander it. We would give it away. We would be thankless for it. We would we would never believe it. We would never continue in the way if it were not for the Holy Spirit being that guarantee. But as it is, he does guarantee the redemption of The purchased possession Um, by the way we have to distinguish this redemption right here that is being discussed from the redemption that we saw in chapter 1 verse 7 in chapter 1 verse 7 we talked about the redemption that we now have right the redemption we now have we have redemption in order in the sense that God purchased us with Christ's blood we have been redeemed. We've been forgiven for our sins. We've been taken from Satan's camp and put into God's camp. But there is yet more to redemption. There is another redemption yet coming. And this is what's discussed in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. The Apostle Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This day of redemption is talking about a yet future time when the Lord Jesus Christ will return and pick up all of those things that he has already given the down payment for. So one day, the Lord Jesus Christ will return and he will raise up our bodies even. This is what the Apostle Paul called the first fruits, right? The resurrection of our bodies is yet to come. There are all the things we've discussed so far, the forgiveness of sins, all of these things, they're just the start of things that will continue for eternity. And those will start taking place on that day of redemption, when the Lord comes, when he returns to take possession, complete and total possession of his purchased people. So these are this is the redemption that is going to be the final redemption. The redemption from weakness and corruption, from mortality, right? Mortality will put on immortality as the apostle says. This is the redemption from our present state of Journeying, pilgriming, not having a permanent home. We're going to be taking from this earthly tent and this earthly sojourn and being given a permanent, eternal, forever home with God. This is redemption from the body of sin and its consequences. This is redemption from sickness and disease and despair and sadness and sorrow. All of the things that attend our lives now. This is Redemption from the reproach of the world and the slings and arrows of the devil. This is redemption from persecution and and fighting and disagreement among Christians and disunity. This is redemption from the devil's temptations and from his snares and his tricks. This is redemption from our own unbelieving and wavering hearts. You see, right now we live by faith, but then we will live by sight. We will see what God has done for us, and we will be with God in fellowship, and we will know him as he is, even as he knows us. So then we will have freedom, redemption, as it were, from all doubt and all fear. There will be no more of that, no more death, no more grave, no more fear of hell. We will have, as the Apostle says, The first fruits, uh, the the redemption of the first fruits, the, the adoption, the final redemption. So the redemption spoken of here then is that end goal of our salvation. Now it is referred to here as the purchased possession. And remember, we were chosen and then redeemed by Christ. And when we receive our full inheritance, the redemption of God's possession takes place. When, when God finally takes, pl- takes full possession of his saints, then we also will receive our inheritance. The inheritance that Christ gained for us, right? which is everlasting life, forever dwelling with God, but also the inheritance that we are now, by God's grace, with his Spirit working in us, we are storing up for ourselves an inheritance in heaven. Did you know that? In, in chapter 4, verse 30 of that passage I read you, I want you to think about this. The Apostle Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do you know that you can grieve? Christian, you can grieve God. You can make God sorrowful over your conduct, over your unbelief, over your sins, over our slowness to obey. We can cause God grief. I don't know who else to read that. But, But notice also from this that it is that same Holy Spirit by whom we are sealed for the day of redemption. So then, the purchased possession, which is us, will one day set aside all of that unbelief and be made perfect. We will be freed from the presence of all sin, Right now, you are in process of that. You are in the beginning phases of that. You have been freed. Remember, you have been freed from sin's penalty. Right? You have been freed. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been freed from the penalty of sin. And you have also been freed from the power of sin. Sin is no longer your master. It no longer has dominion over you. Remember, in fact, we read this. The benefits, the benefits that they are effectually called partake of in this life. Shorter Catechism 32. They that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification. Do you hear that? Sanctification. Growing in Christ-likeness. Growing in holiness. And as we do that, we are contributing to the inheritance that we have in heaven. We are, by God's grace, enabled by His Spirit actually storing up part of our inheritance in heaven. That's why we work as those who work for God and not for man. We don't work as men-pleasers. We work as people who work for God. All right, now we look at a final point here, God's purpose in all of this. And this is the third time that he has said this in, this past, in these verses. God's purpose is to the praise of his glory. You saw it in verse 6. that we were chosen, uh, In verse 6, we were chosen to be wholly predestined to adoption to the praise of his glorious grace. We saw it again in verse 12. <clears throat> we were redeemed through his blood, given the forgiveness of sins, the, revelations of, the revelation of the mystery of God's will, and we became God's own possession. Why? Verse 12 tells us, To the praise of his glory. And so now here, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Why? To the praise of his glory. Now, don't miss this. I alluded to this before, but you notice that initially, it is God the Father who chose us, right? God chose us to the praise of his glory. God the Father. And then God the Son who redeemed us to the praise of his glory and now God, the Holy Spirit, who seals us to the praise of his glory. Beloved, what do you think God is working on here? What is God seeking? He is seeking that he will be glorified. And he wants you, Christian, to take part in that. He wants you to be his prize. Possess- you know, I was thinking uh, think of the, the, the bad news bears. You know, remember the, the the movie The Bad News Bears, and this team shows up. Or there's a there's a hundred movies like this, but you have this ragtag, these 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 misfits that show up, you know, on the first day of practice, and they're just like, how is this team ever going to bring any glory to anyone? And that's kind of where we're at right now. How are we ever going to bring glory to God? Well, we are going to do it by believing and following after Him as we are empowered by the Spirit. We are not yet what we shall be. But we have a guarantee. We have a seal that will ensure that we get there. And that is why the Lord says in Isaiah 43, The people I have formed myself, they shall declare my praise. Do you see that? God forms a people who will declare his praise. It will happen. And one day God's saints will be the most glorious thing in all creation. That is what God has in store for his people. So a natural question we have to ask ourselves is, have we been sealed by the Spirit? Have we received the seal and guarantee of God's Holy Spirit? And I'm just going to give you some, re- some ways that you can know whether that has taken place. First of all, have you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation? Now, I know you hear it, many of you, week after week, maybe several times throughout the week. But I'm talking about hearing it with understanding. Do you understand? Do you know the gospel? If I came up to you with a knife in my back and I said, what must I do to be saved? Could you tell that to me? Could you wake up in the dead of the night and tell me if someone woke you up and it's quick, what must I do to be saved? It's a good exercise. Do you, have you heard? Do you understand the gospel? Guess what? If you have, that's the proof of the work of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Jesus said this, take care then how you hear. For to one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. I fear that there will be people who sit in churches hearing the Gospel but not really hearing it because they're not taking care. And then even what they think they have will be taken away. So then if you hear, if you hear with understanding... If you hear the gospel and understand it, really really understand it, what it says about you and what it says about God, that is evidence of the Holy Spirit. A second thing, have you believed in Jesus Christ as he is offered to you in the gospel? Do you are you banking on that? Have you put all of your chips on that? Everything that you have come what may, all of your hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. If so, that is the, that is what the Apostle said in this passage, when he sealed you with his Holy Spirit. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are those who have been sealed with the Spirit. You see, it's because belief in Christ comes to us by the power of the Spirit. And so it's that same Spirit who, who allows us to understand the Gospel and, and, and enlightens our hearts and enlivens them in order to believe He is the one who seals us. Another question is, does the Spirit of God bear witness in your heart that you are a child of God? What does the Apostle Paul say in Romans 8, 15 and 17? He says, You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Does the Spirit of God testify in your spirit that you are God's child? Do you see, to become God's child means to be taken again from that kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. Can you call God your Father? And Him being your Father, do you have a fondness and an affection for Him? Do you love God as your Father? Even now is the Spirit in your heart crying out to God, our Father. Do you understand this? Not everyone can call God Father. God will be our Creator. He will be our Judge. But He is not going to be everyone's Father. He is only the Father of those who have His Holy Spirit. Those who have been adopted. But if you have His Holy Spirit, you can approach Him as your Father. Another question. Does your life... Evidence the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You know the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These come from Galatians chapter 5. Does does your life evidence the fruit of the Holy Spirit? If If the Spirit of God has indeed sealed your heart, it stands to reason that he is working in you. These fruits, I'm not talking about being perfect. I'm asking you, are they there at all? Let me say them again love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. These are the fruit of the Spirit. These are the things that the Spirit of God works in His people. Why? Well, remember, you are God's prized possession and He's preparing you to be to the praise of His glory. And this is, as the catechism says, our sanctification. One of the benefits you partake of in this life, in this life. If you are not being sanctified, we have to ask, what spirit did you receive? On the other hand, dear Christian, if you are being sanctified, if you are finding these things in you, even a little bit, then know that you are being sanctified by God the Holy Spirit. And that is proof of his sealing work. Two more briefly. Do you count yourself as God's possession? Do you recognize God's ownership over you? Do you live your life as one who belongs to God? Jesus Christ has purchased you for God. He bought you with his blood. Do you, body and soul, belong to him? Do you see yourself as belonging to him? And all that entails, including how you behave and think and speak, If you do, then you know that the Holy Spirit is working in you, and that is confirmation of his sealing. Finally, do you desire and strive to praise God? It was for that reason that God chose you, right, to the praise of his glorious grace. It was for that reason that God redeemed you, to the praise of his glory. And it was that reason that God sealed you and gave you his spirit as a guarantee, to the praise of his glory. That is why God is doing what he is doing, so that his people will praise him. Now, our worship now, our praise of God now is imperfect. We are slow to praise God. We are imperfect in our praise of God. We are oftentimes distracted. I'm, again, I'm not talking about perfect and flawless praise of God. I'm talking about, is there a sincere desire in you, even right now, to offer unto God praise and thanksgiving for what He has done for you? If not, I have to ask, has He done it for you? Uh, in the Wesley hymn, O for a Thousand Tongues, to sing sometimes I think about that, if I could have just one tongue to sing praises to god wouldn 't that be marvelous, but but he 's expressing in that hymn our our inability, the weakness of our worship right now, right? if we had a thousand tongues to sing praises to God, it would scarcely approach what what, what we owe to him, and yet it would be a good start wouldn 't it, and that gives us a taste of eternity, so now, do you desire, do you want to? At your best, even, to to offer praise to God? If so, know that that comes from His Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance, and He has sealed you when you believed. All right, let's pray. Our Father, indeed we call You Father by the power of Your Holy Spirit, by His voice speaking in our spirits, crying out to You, Lord God, we call You Father because You have purchased us and adopted us and made us Your people. Lord, we want to praise you. Even our best praise, Lord, is lacking. And, Lord, we have so much to learn and so much to grow. But, Father, we believe you when you tell us that we will be to the praise of your glory. And even tonight, we thank you for that. In Jesus' holy name, amen.